Before we start today's show, let me remind you about our patron program. If you enjoy the program, you'll continue to get it for free on your provider. However, if you're so inclined and you're up to it to, to leave a tip in the tip jar, as it were, uh, you can do that by becoming a patron of the show. There are three levels, three different amounts, with uh, different bonuses depending on the amount that you contribute on a monthly basis. It'll give you additional access to the show, as well as input into the program as well. Check it out at patreon.com slash what's the score. That's patreon.com slash what's the score, all one word, patreon.com. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guests today. That's right, guests, plural. Now, both have been on the program before. One, uh, an actor, writer, and director, and the other, a film composer. They've worked together on several projects, the latest of which is called The Dinner Party, which is releasing soon to a screen near you. I, I wanted to explore the working relationship between a director and a composer and see how it works. So, you know, we've already had Spielberg and Williams, we've had Brian Forbes and John Barry, and we've had Alfred Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann. And to that list, we can now add Dolak and Hyde. Please help me in joining, uh, uh, welcoming Miles Dolak and Clifton Hyde to the program. Hi, guys. Hi, Frank. Good to have you with us. And it's uh, very exciting uh, with a new film coming out. If I was looking back through the archives, it's been just almost exactly a year since you and I talked last, Miles, and uh, maybe about 11 months for uh, Clifton. So I'm sure a lot has happened, and we'll be getting into that today. I, I, do you guys have any idea how many films that you've done together to this point? Uh, four. Well, four features and, um, what, Clifton, three or four shorts? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, I'd say three or four. And also uh, a bunch of plays where I wrote incidental music and stuff yeah. for, uh, as well so. for for plays yeah <laughs> oh how interesting so in other yeah. words it wasn't necessarily a musical but it was just used to transition between scenes or something uh both uh we did huh. uh you know when, when uh did rocky horror years ago and i did a bunch of music that acted as transitions and also backgrounds for the narrator's speech we had an excellent actor playing the narrator just for the for uh huh. 
Yeah, his name was Clifton Hyde. <laughs> uh, and then uh, they, Hyde. And they did, uh, Miles did a production of Midsummer's Night, uh, and I wrote uh, a bunch of kind of Renaissance type music and stuff that played in the background for key scenes and for scene changes of that huh. as well. Uh, Fascinating. So you obviously you guys have a long history together. That's the message, I guess, right? Yes. I mean, I, I Clifton is my longest running single creative collaborator. Uh, we have been creating to one degree or another since high school together. Wow. Why, why do you think those kind of relationships develop? I mean, I, I mentioned some of the famous uh, duos uh, that exist existed in the past or even to this day still exist. But, why do you think sometimes some, and I guess I'll address this first to Miles, why do some directors all of a sudden just kind of hook up with one composer and that's the only one they'll ever use? Do you have any insight into that? Well, I, I, some of it is the camaraderie and and the chemistry between the two personalities. And I think Clifton and I have that going for us. Um, we have reached a point where we have a shared vernacular, um, both in terms of our musical history and taste and and you know just on a personal level um mm -hmm. and i you know hopefully we we still like each other and that's important <laughs> of course <laughs> too. um and one of the things i love about working with clifton is that he has no ego um he completely understands and embraces his role as a composer and if he writes something no matter how great he thinks it is if, if i don't think it works he throws it out and he doesn't get offended He's like, this is the job. You know, I also think that uh, we were in preparation for this interview this morning. I was listening to uh, a, a little of Jan Hammer's uh, greatest hits, if you will. And, uh, and Lindsay, my, my partner in life and art, uh, uh, happened to say, wow, this sounds like something Clifton would have written. And so I think that we, <laughs> <laughs> that Clif Clifton and I share uh, uh, some musical taste, especially when it comes to instrumental music. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes we just uh, our creative sensibilities collide. And and that's that's really a great thing, I think, with people that you continue to work with again and again. Yeah. Well, Clifton, for you, I'm kind of curious. Are there any any particular special uh, requirements or challenges when it comes to writing music for horror films? Uh, yeah, the, the main thing I find and it's. Uh, it's a, it's very tricky because you have to basically you need to create atmosphere and create ambience and a sense of dread without giving away the the ghost a lot of times. Mm. There's so many shots in horror where you're lingering on something and people are speaking and they're speaking about very benign things, uh, you know, going to the lake house or what they did. Uh, for dinner the night before and the composer's job becomes to let the audience know that something isn't right even though the the people on screen have no idea so yeah. there's a lot of storytelling aspects of it which take away from like so much the melodic grandness of say an indiana jones type score where you're you're just you know projecting heroism and there's a, a, a very fine line that, that happens in horror, because if you pay attention to a lot of horror scores, it's mostly wall-to-wall -wall music, and the trick is for the audience not to realize that there's something in the background almost all the time. Hmm. So almost the music needs to be 
as interesting as it is ignorable. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. That's interesting. Let's let's go ahead and dive into uh, some of the work that you guys have done together. Uh, the first clue we're going to listen to is uh, from the film Demons. Uh, Miles, if you don't mind, could you just kind of give us a little bit of a synopsis of uh, of the film itself and also what it was that you were looking for in music for this particular film? So Demons is, a, an, let's call it an exorcism psychological thriller okay. uh, where the exorcism goes horribly awry um, based on a number of circumstances. It's got some Southern Gothic elements, um, some religious elements uh, that I was very interested in pursuing. Um, Had some wonderful performances in it, not only from Lindsay Ann Williams, but Andrew Deepoff, who just is fantastic as Jasper. Um, Jessica Harthcock as Jewel, the sister who who is troubled in this particular instance. Um, so I, I urge people to check it out. But anyway, the point is, uh, we wanted to draw on uh, the inspiration of 70s horror in particular, films mm. like the, the Exorcist and The Omen. And I believe we used uh, uh, Awe Satani in our last uh, discussion, Frank. So, okay. so, so when Clifton and I um, first started conceiving the score and talking about the creative impetus of this score, we talked about those films. You know, Exorcist, Omen, Rosemary's Baby, uh, Sentinel, that that type of stuff. And and the score had to have this uh, dark, foreboding, religious kind of grandeur about it. And uh, I think Clifton nailed it. Wow. Clifton, anything you want to add to that in terms of uh, telling us a little bit about the cue before we play? Well, uh, I mean, basically, you know, he kind of he kind of said everything there. There was a lot of I spent a lot of time. Uh, looking at a, a bunch of older music uh, from uh, the, the Catholic masses, uh, like the Foray Requiems, the Verdi Requiems, and mm-hmm. then even on way back to, to old madrigals and uh, plain chant, uh, Guidonian hand type music. And so I took a lot of harmonic and melodic information from that. But the thing that I, I wanted to do different you know, he brought up uh, Ave Satana, which is, you know, the omen and fantastic, but it's very much done in a strict classical sense. Um, and what I wanted to do to differentiate that is I wanted to actually use modern scoring and orchestral techniques, but using the older vocabulary and the more liturgical vocabulary. So that's why there's a lot of very uh, avant-garde type string playing, like the violins. There's you'll you'll notice in some parts of the cues where the violins aren't playing with their bows, they're actually hitting the strings of the, the stick of their, their uh-huh. instead of the hair. And uh, a lot of times I had the, the choral members uh, doing like, like syllables hmm. and, and building up sound textures that way, using syllables from from the, the Catholic, the, the Latin Catholic mass, but not actually saying the words. And so then I'd compile them after the effect or after the recording to give it the effect of uh, cacophony yet still grounded in where it was coming from. So it was a very interesting hybrid trying to like modernize that vocabulary and that language with okay. with different with modern orchestral techniques. Yeah, and the uh, the cue is called what is it called? Uh, uh, Kyrie for Kylie. Okay. And by it, the way, real real quick, who names these cues? Is that your job? That is my job. Yeah. Okay, I'm just curious. All right, well, let's have a listen to this. This is from the film Demons, and it's written by our guest, 
Clifton Hyde. I don't know if I'm going to be able to ask this question properly, and this is probably well, – it'll be for both of you, but I want to hear from Clifton first. Um, how do I ask this? I, in other words, as a composer, you have a lot of power, especially in a movie like this, because through music you can you know, get people on the edge of their seats and make them jump. You know, I mean there's all sorts of power you have in that music, and I'm just kind of curious. Do you, do you have a philosophy of how you 
like to to use music, particularly when it comes to cheap cheap thrills. In other words, there there's some obvious uh, things where it, people are going to be shocked, and it's easy to kind of come up with a a boom kind of a sound on music. Mm. Do you do you always resort to music to for those shocking kind of things, or do you sometimes hold off? I, I don't know if I'm making sense, but maybe you you're, can just kind of yeah, talk you're about making it. sense. But that that uh, from the way I work, that what we call those jump scares. What okay. You're and as far as uh, I'm concerned, uh, when, when I'm speaking with the director, it's like, here's a jump scare at this line or at this edit, there's a jump scare. And that comes from the director because that's the that's the story and that's the effect they want to tell. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times uh, if, if you watch if you watch the film prior to the score being in there and there's no jump scares there, you can kind of it, it doesn't have that effect. So the music really does give it that yeah and and so i just you know what the director tells me here's a jump scare i put a jump scare in there you know and that's that's it's it's very black and white yeah i mean for instance too i mean i i I, in fact i don't even remember i won't say which film it was it was one of the ones that you guys worked on collaboratively um let me think here it was one character basically ends up breaking the neck of another character and you hear the sound effect of that happening. And yet if there was a bunch of music going over it, you wouldn't. And so I, you know, that kind of struck me as that, that that was a good use of, of holding back from music and letting that sound effect do, do the job for you. Does that make sense? Well, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Miles, let's hear from you. I'm sorry. I I mean, and and I want to hear Clifton's response as well, but levels are also supremely important, right? Um, and Clifton weighs in on that, um, but we also work with a wonderful uh, supervising uh, sound mixer uh, in John Vogel uh, at Apex Post Production in New Orleans, who also happens to be my colleague on the faculty of uh, the film program at Loyola University. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we are always thinking about levels, you know, with music versus sound effects versus sound design. Um, which is absolutely critical to the success, especially of a moment like the one that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Want to add to that, uh, Clifton? Well, you know, when when we have those type of moments, um, the my what I view as my job is I need to give options for the sound mixer, and also I need to be aware writing wise what's happening. So, uh, for instance, this this scene you're speaking of uh miles had told me that we're definitely we want to hear the sound here so then all i automatically start thinking okay they're going to be doing foley which is the sound effects after the right. fact putting in so i know they're going to be doing foley and that's going to be the quote-unquote lead vocal moment of this piece of music mm, so okay. like if i was writing for a voice i would make sure that the instruments and the synthesizers and the sounds are not in the frequencies that those sounds exist in. So I would actually write around that to allow for those frequencies to be there and be heard, which gives two things. One, it it gives a it, it literally gives space in the sound spectrum for that sound to cut through to where it's not uh, it's not being it's not competing, it's not being masked by other sounds. Okay. And the okay. other thing that does is it allows for the music around it to not have to be ducked in volume, which then also takes away from the effect. Because if you watch some cheaper made TV 
our movies, you'll hear the, the actual sound editor will just bring the entire music down just for a couple of lines, just as a master fader, then bring it back up. Mm. And that, and it's kind of distracting. It takes away from the impact of the music. Yeah. But if you score the music to allow for the frequencies of the sounds that need to be focal, then you don't have to change the volume and you can still have the impact and then get this huge crunching sound that sounds, <laughs> you know, it, it just, it, it's, it just makes more sense as a whole. You're accounting for that and, and the way I think about it is I'm thinking of that broken neck sound is part of the orchestra for that moment. Okay. The last thing I want to say in that regard is that, you know, when we record score, uh, Clifton provides uh, stems uh, of each instrument. So rather than if there's one particular instrument, whether it's a guitar or a horn or whatever it might be, that is competing with that lead vocal sound effect then that allows us to dip that particular instrument alone while mm. making the same level of the entire score rather than using a master fader as Clifton is, is talking about. And, and what that does effectively is to hide that dip, to make it invisible, because we're only dipping one instrument, not the entire fabric of the soundscape. Right. Okay. Well, the, the, one of the other films that you guys collaborated on was uh, was one that I saw and liked a great deal. It's uh, called uh, Hollowed Ground, and we have two cues that we're going to uh, uh, play from that. But perhaps, Miles, you can tell us a little bit, just a little bit of a synopsis of uh, the movie and what it was about and what you were looking for in the score. So uh, one of the things that was very important to me in with this film is that it made use of Native American instrumentation, Native American rhythms, um, Native American soundscapes. Um, so the, the score employs Choctaw flutes, for example, uh, played by Jaime Jimenez, uh, to, to, to just a, a brilliant effect, in my opinion. Um, and while at the same time mixing in kind of the gritty, dirty, folky South, you know, because this is a Southern Gothic horror film. So we wanted those threads to sort of uh, bleed together. Um, you know, there have, been, there have been a number of films that deal with Native American themes, and then despite having absolutely gorgeous scores, they don't draw on Native American music at all. And we didn't want to make that mistake. Um, so that was, that was sort of our, our central priority. Okay. And then the cues, as I uh, remember here, Clifton, a fateful kiss and... Scraped Skull, I believe it is. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those cues, if you will. We're going to go ahead and play them back to back. Uh, so um, A Fateful Kiss is the music that happens while our two protagonists are uh, rekindling the flame of their damaged relationship. Uh, and uh, while walking through the woods, they, uh, they, they have a very romantic embrace and a lovely kiss that proves to be rather fateful because the entire film turns based off of the result of this one, uh, one warm embrace. Hmm. Uh, and the music uh, kind of tells that story in, in many ways. It has some loving stuff. It has some suspense in there. And you can definitely tell when, when uh, everything goes askew. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things just in general about this score was very, very difficult in that um, I was asked to, to balance 
the Native American traditional type stuff, which took a lot of research and uh, which I really enjoyed thoroughly just learning about the, the melodic and harmonic languages of uh, the Choctaw Indians of Mississippi. Uh, and then the other thing was I was asked to also have a lot of acoustic and natural instruments of the, the rural South uh, to where it had this kind of roughness to it. And, and we also decided to uh, have the tune, all the strings kind of slightly detuned to allow mm. for kind of a broken feel to where it, it never really settled on like a full uh, in tune harmonious thing. There was always some sort of slight dissonance there to, to provide tension. And then the last thing was uh, to go with the dirtiness that, that uh, Miles had asked for. Uh, we, I, I really spent a lot of time coming up with these really distorted, ugly sounds, especially when you hear the drums and some of like the, the bass guitars where it's, it's really pushed to the limit and has this ugly, distorted, disfigured sound to it. Even so much as like a lot of the drums were intentionally played slightly out of time to give it this unsettled thing where, you know, when we tried it on the beat, it just took away from any sense of dread. Uh, so it was it was very tricky. Beautiful flute playing with out of tune guitars that sounded pretty with this <laughs> ugliness of basses and drums. So it was a very difficult score. Uh, and it doesn't sound that way when I listen back. <laughs> but writing something you know, was hard. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not even a musician, but I'm trying to envision how tough it would have been for for a drummer to purposely pay, uh, play off the beat. Yeah, it, it was. That must be crazy. <laughs> and it was. What was really funny is the the person that was working on the sound edits was a percussionist, and he kept saying these drums are out of time, and it was driving him insane. <laughs> Oh, well, let's uh, let's have a listen to this. then. these are, are two cues from the film called Hollowed Ground. Uh, the first one is called Fateful Kiss. And the second one is called Scraped Skull. And again, written by our guest here, composer uh, Clifton Hyde. <laughs> Thank you. 
We'll get back to the program in a minute. But I'm curious, if you're uh, looking for a new coffee mug or T-shirt or practically anything else to help express your love of film music, well, look no further. At, uh, at redbubble.com, we have all kinds of products with our logo, the What's the Score logo, which is a film strip that features pictures of John Barry and John Williams, among other composers. It's really cool, and it does help kind of help express your love of film music. You can check it out on our Facebook page, or you can visit redbubble.com and then search for FRW007, at which point you'll see my store come up, and then you can shop all the various products. That's redbubble.com and search for FRW007, redbubble.com. Curious, uh, and I go to go to uh, Miles first. Do you have any uh, particular favorite other than Clifton? Do you have any particular favorite uh, composers of the the horror genre that you've liked uh, from people that have done this in the past? Um, I mean, I I think it's hard to beat Bernard Herrmann in that in that regard uh, mm. in, in the horror genre. Um. Who else do I love? Uh, Goldsmith, right, is is another one that is that that has written some pretty fantastic stuff. Uh, my, it, as a general rule, my favorite film composers are not in the horror genre, so I, you know, I, I have to I have to grant that. Um, okay. I love John Williams. Um, I, I love. Um, you I could love say Jaws is in the horror genre. Yeah, that's true. You could absolutely. I mean, what is Jaws without John Williams' score? And I think that's another cue that yeah. that uh, that we discussed last time, Frank. Um, yeah. I love I love Vangelis. Uh, I love Jan Hammer, uh, who's who's done more for TV than than film. The Tangerine Dream stuff. In, in oh the yeah. I, I really love um, uh, Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings score is absolutely exquisitely gorgeous, hauntingly fantastic one of my favorite all-time film scores so i mean i could probably go on and on but uh, <laughs> those are a few how about how about for you clifton do you have any particular favorites when it comes to the horror genre that have done a, a, a good job in your view well uh one of my all-time favorite scores that has nothing to do with genre whatsoever would be goldsmith's score to the first alien which i think is just one of the absolute best orchestral scores and it it is if you listen to that score on your own, you're terrified and you have no idea <laughs> what's going on. And he just brings in so many beautiful orchestral cues. And at the same time, when you watch the movie, it's also always there, but it's never in your face. It's right. uh, it's great. Now, one of the, the 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 ones that get composers that never gets a lot of uh, love in the horror genre is, is my man, uh, Mr. Ennio Morricone, who did all of the horror films for Dario and Argento, all those classics, hmm. Italian splatter fests, uh, which I think are just fantastic uh, hmm. scores. Clifton, uh, did you know that Jerry Goldsmith wrote the score of Secret of Nim? No, I did not. Which is a, which is kind of a horror. It's one of the scariest cartoons I've ever seen, animated films I've ever hmm. seen. Yeah, uh, I did. I didn't know he did that one. That's, yeah, that's he sure pretty did. cool. He sure did. Uh, but yeah, and and with the Omen, Alien, Poltergeist, 
Poltergeist, I forgot he did that. So yeah, so I, I'd probably, I love Poltergeist. Yeah. In terms of horror composers, uh, and and his work is not totally limited to horror. He did Chinatown and some other stuff. Um, I love the Chinatown score too. Yeah, that's, but, that's but, but I would have to probably rank him up at the top of horror composers for me. Yeah, he, he get he has a, he has a tension to it that's really really fantastic. Yeah. Uh, there's also yeah. this this oh, one ahead. composer. Um, Koji Indo, who I absolutely think is is one of the best horror film composers. He works primarily in uh, Japan and Korean cinema. And if you're not familiar with Japanese or Korean horror movies, it's some of the most cutting edge, crazy, over the top horror for the last 20, 25 years. And uh, Koji Indo did a lot of music for Takeshi Miike, who's one of my favorite Japanese horror um, directors, and especially mm -hmm. their work on this movie Gozu, another one called Audition, and then Ichi the Killer. Those are all just fantastic scores that really balance a lot of different genre. Uh, yeah, so check them okay. out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. A lot, some, a lot of those I'm not even familiar with, so you, you have piqued my curiosity. Let's um, let's go ahead and start to dive in with your your latest effort. Uh, the film is called The Dinner Party. Um, First of all, maybe if Miles can kind of give us the the, uh, the standard kind of brief summation about what the film is about, and that'll set the stage for some other things we'll talk about. Absolutely. So the dinner party is about an aspiring writer and his wife who receive an invitation to dinner at the home of renowned surgeon and culinary enthusiast Carmine Braun, played to great effect by Bill Sage, mm. and, and Carmine's cadre of culturally elite uh, snooty rogues who have <laughs> promised to potentially bankroll our playwright's play to Broadway. So he's looking at this as sort of a golden opportunity to take the next step. And um, as it turns out, uh, our hopes have darker designs in mind uh, for our hero couple. And the night quickly descends into madness as they try to stay alive um and, and an ancient secret is revealed about who these people are that's going to change everybody's life uh, forever. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty you, much it you know i mean i i, I, I i'm going to ask you if, if this if you would agree with this statement and i don't i don't mean it is it's just an observation on my part doesn't mean it's true but this almost struck me as and i mean this as a compliment by the way it almost struck me as that this was more of a thinking man's horror movie than, than typically a lot of times what you see. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, man, I sure hope so, Frank. I, okay. I, I hope that this movie, and, and to a certain extent all of my movies, make people think and rattle around in people's heads a bit and, and penetrate and transport and maybe uh, make folks reevaluate preconceptions. Uh, I mean, I think that is a central role uh, of art, uh, to, to provide some commentary, to hold the mirror to nature, uh, sometimes in a in in an over the top way um, to really you know shake people awake and get their attention. So I I, I sure I, I do take that as a compliment, Frank, and I and I hope it does make some folks think. Okay, yeah, I mean because let's face it, sometimes there's some movies out there that are just they're just all about the blood and the guts and slashing and all that sort of thing. And there's a you know there's a place for that, but that's if that's what you're looking for, this is not the film to go see. It's right. It, it, but it, yeah, it's, that's one of the phrases that occurred to me, a thinking man's horror film. Um, 
I also know that in talking with Clifton about uh, about this project, you had mentioned to me that there were some uh, scores out there that had kind of given you a little bit of a, a template or an inspiration for what you wanted to write for uh, the dinner party. I thought we would play uh, some of those. In fact, we'll just kind of play them all back to back. But maybe if Clifton, you can tell us a little bit about uh, some of these cues that we're going to listen to. And then Miles can also contribute as well if he had any. I don't know if he had any hand in picking these, but uh, just talk to us a little bit about these scores written by other people that served as an inspiration. Well, once I, I got the, the screenplay and started looking through it, I always start making sketches and ideas about different characters who needs themes. What are some obvious uh, set pieces where the music needed to take the lead? Uh, and then we start speaking uh, and going back and forth. And the first question I always ask is, you know, what what's the, the world? What's the sound world you're you're thinking for this? And the original thing Actually, no, on this movie, the original thing was before I even got this, this screenplay, Miles had said, I'm looking for Nine Inch Nails meets opera. And and then he handed me the screenplay. Hmm. And so I was like, oh, this is okay. <laughs> this is, this is my <laughs> wheelhouse. Let's go. Um, and then from there, you know, we, we can start talking and he'd be like, okay, we really need for this set piece. There's a very important part, uh, kind of a turning point in the uh the thoughts of one of the, the central characters where uh, she makes a decision of what she's going to do. And like, there needs to be this set piece where the music is actually going to drive uh, this almost montage type sequence. And he's like, I'm really thinking this is uh, needs to have the effect of Crockett's theme from, from the Miami vice series where uh, from what I remember correctly in the, the pilot episode, it plays with Crockett driving down uh the beach in a convertible with this and he's kind of just going through his thoughts and making decisions. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it, from there I would then say, okay, well, this is, this is the vibe we need to go with. Uh, and then other parts, there was like a fight scene uh, and he really wanted like, I need this kind of with teethy bass synth sound to go with it on, on the certain attack, uh, which bring up nine inch nails type things or, Oh, this, the scene at the end really needs to have that Vangelis, like beautiful synthesizer type moments. And we would just talk through these things over the course of, you know, uh, whatever, two months it took to do the entire score. Uh, and I would send him stuff and he'd be like, okay, can you add some like Queen from Flash Gordon in there on top? <laughs> no, seriously, it'd be like, we'd have this one thing. He'd be like, can you give me the Queen thing there and then another cue would be like oh uh when we see this reflection in the mirror i want that guitar sound from in the air tonight by phil collins and i'm like okay and and so then i have to like figure out how to do it how to how to make those sounds all come together uh and it's it, it really is kind of it's just a dialogue back and forth and um, we throw things at each other all the time and he just gives me other ideas. And then I say, how's this? Yeah, that's it. Or no, maybe that wasn't the best idea. Why don't you try blah, blah, blah. And and that's kind of how it goes. Okay. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to play these uh, different cues back to back. I don't think I'll play the entire cue, but just to kind of give people a flavor for it. The first one I think you made reference to is the, the Crockett theme. I guess that's Miami Vice, right? Yes. Then Brian May's composition, I believe it's called here Execution. Is that um, from a particular that's, film? Or? That's, that's the Queen from Flash Gordon. Q. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, 
Trent Reisner, I guess, uh, just like you imagined is the name of the queue. No, that no, was Trent Reisner would be your nine inch nails. Okay. And then finally, Vangelis, uh, Dan Mask Rose is the name of the queue, and that's from Blade Runner. That's from Blade Runner. Ah, oh, perfect. Okay, excellent. Well, let's have a listen. To, let's have a listen to these uh, to these four. We'll just sit back and relax and enjoy a sample from all four of these that were meant to uh, serve as inspiration for the dinner party that we're going to talk about in more detail here in a moment. Sit back and enjoy.
something I found interesting in in the dinner party as well was that I, I, I guess it's almost like that like opera was a character in the film. And I'm wondering if most of the audiences like me, and I'm ashamed to say this in some ways, I, I don't really know all that much about opera. So I'm kind of curious why you why you chose that that to be almost like a central character in the film. When I don't know, maybe most of your audience is familiar with opera, but I just I just found that kind of interesting. If you could talk to me about that, Miles. I I mean I doubt most of the audience is familiar with opera, quite quite frankly. Okay. But uh, I think opera is one of those art forms that has typically been the purview of the aristocracy, mm. uh, and and I think that many among the elite. Um, think they're supposed to love opera <laughs> and so they find ways to embrace it um, or to know just enough about it to be dangerous which I think is the case with say Jeff Duncan uh, when he uh, tries to follow along with Carmine's discussion of Bluebeard's Castle um, so I, I you know I think that and, and of course opera is also this perfect marriage of music and theater um, and which in this particular movie, uh, I think is telling and, in, and, and significant because this movie is theatrical. It is, uh, stayed in, in some ways. It is slow burn. It is artsy and all those things. And I think most of the, the folks who, the responses that we've gotten, uh, understand that and appreciate that. And, and a few, uh, you know, don't have time for it. It's, you know, it's too slow. We, we live in such a fast food society right now. Mm-hmm. And it's so disappointing that people don't have uh, patience anymore for art. You have to have patience for opera. And um, so maybe in some ways it, it made perfect sense that one of my films incorporated it uh, to such a huge degree. And then, of course, the operas that each um, character is infatuated with directly reflect on who that character is, mm. what, what makes that character tick and where they are in their narrative journey. And, and Clifton ensured that was the case. And in fact, after consulting with Clifton, we even changed uh, some of those operas uh, with regard to particular characters to make sure they fit, to make sure they fit. So did, did either of you come into this with a, with a pretty good working knowledge of opera or did you have to educate yourselves? I'm an Miles addict. first. Okay. Oh, oh, you're an addict. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Clifton is an addict and, and a fanatic for opera. I mean, yeah. he, uh, so I, I had to educate myself to, to okay. something. I mean, of course, you know, I knew the, I knew the biggies, you know, I, you know, I know Puccini, I know, uh, Don Giovanni. Um, you know, right. I, I, I had listened to, to Wagner's ring cycle once or twice, maybe, but, uh, but no, I really some of these more obscure operas. It's obscure to me, at least. I had to educate myself. Not true. Okay. okay. Well, what I thought we would do is uh, is listen to. Uh, uh, it looks like we've got about three cues here that we can play, but I'm going to play them one one at a time. And Clifton, maybe if you'd be so kind to tell us a little bit about the what we're going to hear and and uh, why you composed it this way. The first cue is called a dress, a razor, a sink, and the their goldfish. I think is what it said. Yes. Um, Tell us a little bit about that cue, what it was you were trying to accomplish. Well, basically, this cue is uh, – it, it takes place in Act 1 of the, the film. 
Mm-hmm. It's it, and it essentially establishes three things. It establishes uh, three different characters of uh, Vincent, Sadie, and uh, Haley. So um, if you see the film, you'll understand what the actual descriptors are in it. Uh, and it, it jumps back and forth between the three characters uh, as they're kind of meandering through this house, preparing each of themselves for the dinner in the ways that they do it. Um, and I, don't, I, I, I hope not to spoil, so that's about how I can do it. Uh, but you, <laughs> if you listen to it, there's some very ugly, distorted stuff, which has to deal with the, the razors. Uh, there's some very pretty stuff. Uh, that deals with almost a supernatural fae type uh, sound that goes with the dress, which is also spoken about in the dialogue. And then the the goldfish is uh, another character's experience washing their hands. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of hard to describe, but I, it, it's it, very it, hard to describe. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're dancing around, Clifton. Yeah, but that's yeah. Well, I don't it's, like to give away. I understand. <laughs> well, let, let's have the music tell us tell the story rather than us. Then I guess maybe we'll 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 try that. Let's uh let's give this a listen. It's uh, from the Miles's new uh, film called The Dinner Party, and it's a cue from that film written by again our guest Clifton Hyde.
the uh, the next cue we thought we would play uh, is referred to uh, the the title of it is Red Jacuzzi. Maybe again, if you could, Clifton, kind of tell us a little bit about what you were trying to accomplish with that cue, without well, giving giving away anything. <laughs> this is uh, this cue is basically suspense leading into action, uh, and and has a couple of really important parts in it where a you know you're you're building up the suspense, then there's a very obvious uh, fight struggle type scene in the music, uh, which then leads to uh, this the, this main theme of the the whole score, which uh, Miles had me uh, change the sound of like three times, to where he finally got the synthesizer gloriness of like the Vangelis thing really came through. Uh, and I and I was trying when it got to the point where this character understands that they're on power, this theme comes in, uh, and I originally had it on horns. And he's like, no, it needs to be more this this Vangelis thing. And then I just kept trying to get there, and I was trying to to come up with the correct sound without actually doing the Vangelis thing. And then finally, I just said, okay, I want to put it on a Yamaha CS80, which is a vintage <laughs> synthesizer from 1979. And I sent that to him, and he's like, that's it. I'm like, of course it's it. It's the <laughs> same synthesizer, the exact same one that Vangelis used on Blade Runner. So I, I there uh, you go. <laughs> yeah, so it, it really it wasn't a matter of the writing; it was a matter of the right instrument. And then once once that was there, it came in, and and uh, and I I have to say it it works great, especially with the visual. There's this one turn of the head when that theme comes in with that sound, which just says this bitch is bad, and it's awesome. So do do you? I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to visualize this because I I don't know if you record with an entire orchestra or if it's all digital or not, but. The Both. the the change okay the the changes that sometimes Miles wants is that after you, hey, I've already paid the musicians we've we've recorded the score now I need to make a change is that is that happen sometimes I'm not trying to be critical I'm really just trying to understand the process 100 percent 100 percent what 100 <laughs> percent that happens all the time oh okay okay and, uh, so what what I generally do is uh, I, 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 when I'm working with, with outside musicians that I'm paying for their time, I compose numerous things and do numerous takes and create what are called safeties. Oh. So for any one minute of film, I may have in excess of 11 minutes of uh, material that I've written in different things, in different ways of that musician. Oh, so wow. I present my what I think is the best thing or the most apropos part and I'll send that to him and then if he if he's like no 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 then I, I I can go through these other recordings these other themes I've done of that musician um if if it's not if it's a, a, a an instance like this where the sound wasn't right uh, and then it just came down to me personally it's like okay well I, I you know, I'll find the synthesizer and, and use the right synthesizer for it uh, and then I just you know the the money that I I spent getting the other musicians to play on it well they they're not on that queue anymore, and that just goes goes away to cost of doing business. Yeah, uh, and that's just how it is because it you know it it doesn't it doesn't matter. It has to be what's right at the end, and and sometimes you have to you know spend money to record stuff that doesn't get used, and that's okay. Yeah, and so you said you use a combination of in some cases you're you're using a digital I uh, use whatever process tool to, to record gets stuff, but the you right sometimes. 
if I if I if I if I do 200 people orchestra, and that's not the sound that's needed, and 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 I'm told we need a Casio keyboard playing some stuff, <laughs> then that's what I'm going to use, and it doesn't matter to me either way. With it's like what is best for that shot, and that's all I care about. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's have a listen to this particular cue. Unless Miles, is there anything you want to add to uh, what we've been talking about, or? No, I, I think Clifton summed it up, and what he just said is exactly why we continue to work together. And he's so amazing to work with. He he he, he knows you and your and your your style of working and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, that means that means a lot. That means yeah. a lot. Well, let's have a listen to this. This is uh, again from the cue, the dinner party. Uh, the new film by Miles Dolak, and the cue is called Red Jacuzzi, written by Clifton Hyde. I'm going to ask one question I think I know the answer to, but 
it's kind of against, I think, where you've been going with this, but it's it's something I kind of sometimes wonder about. It, do, do, first of all, how many how many how many uh, minutes of music did you end up using for uh, uh, the dinner party? Because it's a close to a two-hour film. How, how much how much time did you end up comp- uh, using music during that? Um, I, I couldn't tell you the exact minute count. <clears throat> But I can tell you that there's music in, uh, it must be, what, 80% of the film, Clifton? Uh, yeah, I would think you're looking at maybe 10 to 15. It's easier to go backwards. There's maybe mm-hmm. 10 to 15 minutes without music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, is that by choice uh, uh, for you, Miles, that you just really wanted something, you know, they always wanted, not always, but, you know, for the vast majority of the film, you wanted something in the background? I think that, uh, you know, it, it's... it's it has a lot to do with what we were talking about before mm-hmm. and the, the opera fixation of our central characters um, and, and wanting this musicality and this sense um, because a lot of, you know, what, what Clifton did, I, he hasn't talked about this, but, but what he did was, I mean, he drew on, if we're talking about Berg, if we're talking about Vosik or whatever, we're ta- he drew on tropes from operas we're talking about in the film for some of this score. And, and, and weaves that tapestry like throughout. Um, and, and as he mentioned earlier, I think in horror films in particular, having this oftentimes this low, slow burn of, of dread being built up by the music, like Jerry Goldsmith's Alien score, that's a beautiful example, um, just, it just enhances the whole proceeding and the whole experience tenfold. So I did Damn. want a lot of music uh, in, this, in this film. Um, to just to add to the overall ambiance of the of the whole thing. Well, and my my impression, you know, because you were kind enough to uh, to send me a screener and I uh, had watched it yesterday, uh, it it's not it doesn't slap you in the face. The music does. It is it is very atmospheric, uh, in a, in a really good way. It does it does build tension. It kind of creates a mood. It's uh, and yeah, I thought it was used throughout the majority of the film, and that's one of the few times I actually rather enjoyed it because sometimes I think there's too much music in movies these days, but I don't think that was the case here. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Um, and I, you know, Clifton and I are always wrestling with this issue of subtlety versus slap you in the face. Right. And um, I think sometimes um, that's a very difficult and complex tightrope to walk because. I oftentimes, you know, I just want to go for it, it with, with my writing, with my, with my movies, the way I direct actors. Um, and, you know, that's going to get you some scathing reviews because some people are going to say you weren't subtle enough or, you, you know, this was over the top or the music, <laughs> the, the music punches me in the face or, you know, whatever. Um, so, you, you know, you're, you, you know that's going to happen if you make bold choices. But... I, you know what? I don't really care. I'm with Derek <laughs> on that one. Yeah, no, that's all right. Let's let's go into the last cue here, um, uh, Clifton. You had sent us one other cue from the dinner party. Uh, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not even going to try to pronounce this. How do you? Yeah, no, how do you I, pronounce actually, this? don't actually don't don't reveal the name of this cue because it is something of a spoiler. Oh, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. But, but Clifton, tell them about this cue. This is my favorite piece of music in the entire piece. So oh, wow. when I was speaking earlier, just, just speaking earlier, discussing the, the Crockett's theme and the, the, the montage scene of this one character making a choice, 
this is the the direct cue that related to that to the Crockett's team idea. So it's basically okay. one of the the pivotal characters is is making the decision. Uh, there's a nice montage of various things setting up going into the Act Three. It it really is the bridge from Act Two to Act Three. And the theme that's used throughout this cue is uh, hinted at in various ways uh, throughout the whole movie. And it really comes into play in, in the red jacuzzi thing when I was talking about the other character, when that, that, that one striking part where it really comes full, full glory. So this is, this is the one that directly corresponds to that uh, decision thought provoking um, idea that, that, he was asking for from Michael Mann's Crockett theme scene. Okay. All right. Well, let's have a listen. This is a, a, a cue from the uh, the new film of Miles's, uh, The Dinner Party, and once again written by our guest, Clifton Hyde.
Well, the important thing after having talked so much about the dinner party, we need to know, uh, you know, where can people see this film, Miles? Uh, where, where is it? Uh, it's going to be released uh, momentarily, I guess. We're recording yes. this on the 5th of June, and I know it's coming out really soon, but where, where can people uh, check it out? Yeah, so initially we had planned for a theatrical release uh, today, uh-huh. uh, and we had glorious events planned for New Orleans and Los Angeles, and um, but of course, uh, COVID and theater closures have prevented that from happening, um, uh-huh. like, like it has been the case with lots and lots of films, not only independent films, but studio films. So um, we are going straight to the streaming world uh, on June 9th. Um, and uh, the film will be available on all your major streaming platforms, uh, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Fandango Now, Vudu, uh, VHX, Steam, um, Pluto TV, uh, Tubi TV, uh, and then on your cable video on-demand menu, regardless of your cable carrier, whether it be Cox or Time Warner or (laughs) Comcast, whatever it might be. Uh, and then you will be able to purchase the DVD Blu-ray on uh, Amazon uh, as well. So oh, excellent. We, yeah, so we encourage people. To, the DVD Blu-ray had some cool special features, in, in, uh, especially a 10-minute or so behind-the-scenes featurette uh, shot by a friend of ours, uh, Travis Mills. So, so check that out. It has interviews with the actors and, and, and on-set, some cool on-set stuff. And, um, you know, what, what we encourage folks to do is please seek our film out and, and give it a watch on whatever your preferred platform might be. And after having done so, if you like the film, uh, please give it a review on, on that same platform. Um, independent films uh, live or die, succeed or fail, oftentimes based on word of mouth, based on buzz, mm. based on, uh, use, you know, folks who are consuming the product telling another five people about the film and then they tell another five and the snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We don't have the marketing dollars. We have an incredible publicist in Clint Morris in October Coast, but we do not have uh, the marketing dollars to compete with Studio Fair. Uh, so it, it really is a grassroots, ground up kind of effort. So we ask people, please check our film out as soon as you can after June 9th and, and leave us a review. Doesn't have to be long, can be great cinematography or wonderful acting or the score was <laughs> whatever. Um, but but do say something nice about our film on IMDb or Amazon or iTunes or whatever your chosen platform might be. Well, I will I will tell our audience that it's you know, you, you've done a, a brilliant job in in uh, in marketing with basically no no big money. And what I mean by that is that uh, there's been I, I don't know, I'm guessing off the top of my head at least at least a dozen reviews of your film. And if I recall correctly, there might be one that didn't like it, and then the rest of them, like 10 or 11 of them, loved it. So the, the early reviews are, uh, are certainly going to be helpful to you, and they're, and they're very positive. And by the way, I really liked it, too, and I'm not like a big horror fan. Well, but thank uh, but thank uh, I, I was impressed. And the other thing that's impressive, too, for our audience to realize, in, independent films are, you know, it's a real tough road to, uh, to go through in order to get a film made. And you sometimes are missing things because you don't have the big budget to do it. And you can kind of see it on the screen. Not here. Not here. You can it's it's it looks like a studio film, not like a a cheap independent film. It's really very well done. So my congratulations to both you guys for the work that you've done. Do you you have anything else in the pipeline, either one of you, that you would like to tell us about? There's something that's coming in the future. 
Uh, we are in the process of uh, the, the development process, um, the planning process of a new film uh, that we we are hoping to per, per chance get shot uh, before the end of the year. Uh, that is, of course, there are, you know, there are a lot of caveats. There are a lot of ifs. Um, and, uh, you know, we first and foremost, we want to be safe. Uh, we're going to listen to the experts. Uh, we're going to ensure that our cast and crew have peace of mind uh, when they show up on our set. Um, but yes, we do. We are developing a new project. Um, we have got a lot of calls uh, to start developing a dinner party sequel, which is something that I've <laughs> never done. Uh, so uh, we have started to work on uh, a script for that as well. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, and uh, Clifton is actually in the process of uh, a scoring a film, you know, just because we have a bit of time on our hands, uh, a scoring a short film that we shot couple years back as part of a 60-hour film festival that, you know, due to everything else that's been going on, has never received a proper release. So, so we're putting a proper score on that film. It's called Uhura. Um, and uh, we'll be putting that film out, um, you know, I would say probably in the next six months or so. So give that okay. a look as well. Clifton, you got anything in the pipeline other than uh, your work with Miles? Uh, I have uh, a few other things going on. Uh, I, I'm in the process of working... Uh, at the university, taking care of lots of big, exciting schoolwork. Uh, and yeah, he's uh, a big time professor now, folks. So it's a uh, we, you know, we got to give him his due. It's yeah, you, you need to go back <laughs> and edit in the word professor before my name every time you say it. <laughs> well, gentlemen, listen, I cannot thank you enough for uh, getting together to uh, to talk about this. I've always kind of wanted to talk to a team of a director and a composer to see how it works and you've certainly helped us understand that better um and uh, hey we're looking forward to seeing this film uh, again it's the dinner party coming soon to a screen near you through any kind of streaming platform that you can think of as well as on blu-ray and uh well, again we'll just thank our guests miles and uh, clifton thanks for joining us today thank you sir thank you for having us frank oh my pleasure that's uh, that's gonna about wrap it up for us today um I'll remind our listeners, too, that if you want to be a patron of the program and, as I say, leave us a little tip in the tip jar, we'd really be grateful. Uh, and that's patreon.com slash what's the score. And there's information on our Facebook page about that. So that'll about wrap it up. Uh, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.